This is Christopher Johnson from Farmington Hills, Michigan. And this WBEZ podcast is made possible with the support of listeners like me. And I love hearing these podcasts and the great radio programming available from WPEZ, either on air, online, or on my favorite mobile device. This is the state we're in from WBEZ. I'm Jonathan Gruber with stories of transformation from around the world. Today's show, Changelings. And we've got two stories today that really fit that theme, starting with a call to prayer. It's been nearly four years since the start of the Arab Spring, and odds are you're likely up to speed on the tumult in Egypt, the fall of Gaddafi in Libya, and of course, the civil war in Syria. But odds are you have no idea of what happened in the Middle East's poorest country, Yemen. In 2011, the start of Yemen's Arab Spring, the country had 20 million people, 60 million Kalashnikovs, an active al-Qaeda cell, and almost no reporters. I heard that, uh, you know, every second person in Libya seemed to be a documentary filmmaker, so I felt quite privileged to be a handful of five people, I think, in, in Yemen. British documentary maker Sean McAllister was, as you just heard, one of the very few Western reporters to be in Yemen during its uprising. A little background first. In 2011, Yemen's president Ali Abdullah Saleh had been in power 33 years when the trouble began. There were demonstrations every day in the capital Sana Central Square. They were calling them peace demonstrations. And the square was dubbed Change Square. And President Saleh was starting to feel very threatened. And before we go on, we need to talk about something key to Yemeni society. The ubiquitous branches pushed into almost every Yemeni man's mouth and chewed loudly. Cut. So what's cut? It's like half a joint and half a knee. Or like a herbally, I'd like to say, really. But to be honest, it didn't ever give me the right kick. So what I used to do was, uh, because it gets stuck in your teeth and in your throat, so whenever you're chewing, you have to have a bottle of water. I mean, some people die of choking because it gets stuck. So I substituted the water for vodka, and that, really, <laughs> and that, that, that really started to do the trick. <laughs> How much could you make arms dealing, selling landmines? Well, you're buying from tribes. You sell it to the government. Sean here is chewing cut with Kais. Kais is his friend and the main subject of Sean's documentary, The Reluctant Revolutionary. As the film opens, Kais is very pro-Saleh and angry the unrest has killed tourism and shut down his hotel. He's saddled with debts and his travel agency only has one booking. Sean asks Kais why he hasn't done what so many others have resorted to, arms dealing. You buy like for $15.00. 18. You sell it like 25, 28. You've never been tempted to do bad? Never. Not even when it gets really hard. To work as a slave, rather than to harm others, or to work in a dirty thing. So, who is Kais? He's a charming, self-educated uh, entrepreneur, in a way, a Yemeni entrepreneur that's finding things tough at the moment. Age? He's probably late 30s, isn't he? Um, yeah, late 30s. Three kids married to his wife. Honest? Yeah, honest and hardworking. Probably too honest for his own good. What do you mean? 
the tour that was happening, he was being shafted, really. There was a tour agent that was just screwing him down on the price. So before those tourists even arrived in Yemen, she'd write to him and say, you know, you have to cut that price and cut that price. And then three days before, we have to cut it even more. So all of his margin was just totally squeezed by the time she got there. And then on the actual holidays, she squeezed him even more so that the profit was gone. So when you first met him, was he a supporter of the Saleh regime? Very much so, yeah. What do you mean? And like, what would he say? Well, he would say things like, um, before this president came to power, we were at war. And when you're living in a country that's constantly fighting between the north and the south, you're not making any progress. When this president came to power, my business went up 10 years ago. I had a, a thriving tourist industry. This is only because peace had come to the country because of this president. This president was making it better. So, you know, he's a businessman. He's got a family and he needs to make ends meet. And that is, to some extent, that's a priority. You know, the majority of people that you meet, even the people for revolution, when you get to that point of going, okay, let's go for it, and you gamble your security, your financial stability, potentially your generation stability, most people would go back and support whoever's at home in power just because they don't want to take that risk. But even being a simple tour guide in Yemen in 2011 is still dangerous. In the film, Kais and Sean are taking a group of Slovenian tourists out of town when the cars are stopped by rocks purposely strewn across the road. Who's done this? The Taliban. The Taliban? Could this be a trap? We shouldn't even be out of the car. They could be in ambush. Why they do this for the tourists? No... They, they did it. Three years. Finish. Halas. Stop people going to Sana. Yeah, go to Sana. To, to protest for the president yeah. or against the president. Yeah. After the Slovenians leave, Kais's work totally dries up. He sits in his office all day, literally ruminating on Kat, waiting for tourists who never turn up. He's having trouble feeding his family, and his wife, who is four months pregnant, is about to take his two daughters and go. I was embarrassed that I couldn't take you these days to my house. No. Because my food situation was awful. So what have your children been eating? These things, spaghetti. Noodles, pot noodles. Yeah. Has she been angry because of that, because of the food? Like, it's a signal of nothing done this time. She's leaving before the end of the month. Do you think she's been fair or unfair? I don't know. The situation is unfair itself. So... To take Kais's mind off his own troubles, and perhaps to further the purposes of his documentary, Sean talks Kais into visiting the anti-Sala peace camps in the centre of town. This, this whole area, is that out, out, of the, out of the hands of the government? Yeah. Wow. A peace camp forms in the centre of Sana, and it is amazing. It is rather like a kind of Glastonbury Woodstock feel. <laughs> it's got this incredibly bizarre because one o'clock or two o'clock they all start chewing. You know, everyone's kind of high as a kite. Wait, when um, you say chewing, you mean cut, and of course that has a narcotic effect. Yeah. Yeah, and it just zones people out for the afternoon. So there's and there's music playing in there, and there are all the tents and stuff all along the streets, and there's food, and and there's a very celebratory feeling. So this was the attraction of the camp, and more and more. Tri- tribes that had formerly been enemies 
were leaving the Kalashnikovs at home and coming to sit in the camp. So you had these big bruising guys who traditionally only ever deal with a problem with a gun were coming to sit in this peace camp and it was getting bigger and bigger. But then Friday comes and Friday is the religious day. It's a religious nation. They go to the mosque and the, the imam is filling them with fervor about the political change. They come back on the streets and then the youth, mainly the young kids, push the boundaries where the army securing the perimeter of this camp and then they push the boundaries to take more streets with the eventual aim of getting to the presidential palace and it's at this point when they started taking too many streets that the government responded by um, shooting live bullets into the camp. There's a moment in the film when things are starting to get more tense and Caius talks about his fears of violence. How exactly did he describe this? It's actually the opening scene of the film where the rocks are on the road and we're trying to get these tourists to the next village and rocks have been placed on the road by uh, supporters of Saleh to stop people going to the Sana, the capital, to, uh, to join the opposition camp. And I simply say to Case, what's the prediction? He says if this revolution happens, it won't be a few drops of blood, it will be a bloodbath because everybody in this country has got a Kalashnikov, everybody. 60 million Kalashnikovs in Yemen. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing, but it ain't funny. <laughs> when, yeah. when he said that to you, what exactly went through your head? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I wondered when my next flight home was. Actually, Sean got that wrong. Kais didn't say it would be a bloodbath. He said it would be a blood swimming pool. Meaning what? What's the difference? Bloodbath will be a few hundreds. Blood swimming pool will be... These words proved to be prophetic. You're shooting? Yeah. Huh? Well, don't, don't let them see the camera, they'll shoot me. He was reluctant to go to the camp because he was a supporter of the president. He didn't want to go in this camp and he didn't want to be near any of these people screaming for a revolution. He just wanted more tourists and business to come back to his life, you know. He didn't need a revolution, you know. He needed he needed work. <laughs> the situation as it presented itself was there was no work, but there was a revolution. And I thought it would be more interesting for him to come and look at this camp and see what was really going on than to sit at home and chew. So I forced him to come with me to see the camp. Uh, he refused to go back on a few occasions, and then he came on one further occasion when we witnessed an attack. And he saw with his own eyes the bravery of the youth of Yemen against live bullets and has this amazing transformation. What exactly happens to him, for example, where you see this transformation? Well, he goes around a ward, a makeshift ward in the hospital and meets some of these people that talk to him about what happened to them. And I think he feels the spirit of these people. In the next scene, we're walking through the camp and I'm just talking matter-of-factly about something or other. And he says to me, you know, you want me to join? I'm already in. But before you were more cynical or more skeptical I, 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 of the opposition. I, was, I wasn't scared, just... Not scared, skeptical, questioning. Yes. You didn't, you, you were not, you didn't believe it completely. You want to join something. You join it with all the results, positive or negative. That's what I believe. You want me to join, I'm already in. 
and the decision that somehow happened within him. You know. Did you want him to join? Was that your purpose? Was that what you wanted? I don't know. I suppose I did. I wanted him to change from what he was at that time when he when there wasn't any work. He was sitting at home and he was chewing, and that drug cats can be as negative as dope in those instances where you just don't do anything and you're just full of self-pity and sorrow. Are you saying you just wanted him to get up and do something, it didn't matter what? The internal change was what interested me and that came through him joining the camp. So how did you feel about him joining the revolution? Well, it was good for a while, but then I started to get scared because he, once he'd embraced the revolution, he wanted to get down on the front line with the live bullets. And uh, by that time, I was wanting to go back to the hotel and chew. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was just a bit too scary for me, you know. As a result of his becoming active and participating, did that change the way you viewed him? Well, I think after he changed, he started talking about the presidents in his country in a way that was really surprising for me because I would ask him, you know, what was all this last three months of talking about the president in this positive way? And he would say, you know, we have no choice. We have to talk like this. You know, it's a kind of this is the way it is in dictatorships. You know, most people in dictatorships say this kind of stuff. But how many of them really, really believe it? And once someone gets beyond that and tells you a truth, you know, when he admits, I'm sorry, you know, this president has to go. It was a complete joke. It's a complete sham, you know. There's a great moment in the film when he talks about coming out of the coma, the most intimate point of the film. He's reflecting on his time under this 33 years of this dictator, and he's coming out of a coma. And it's an awakening that was you know, seen in many countries through the Arab Spring. Do you think a democracy makes any of this thing easier, or do you think it... Of course, Because there's still poor people in democracies. The country will be much better, and I wouldn't lose myself. I wouldn't be late already now, eight months for the rent, three months for this. But you never, when I met you, you never blamed the president for any of this. Now, when you're coming out of the camp... Why didn't you say that when I first met you? It's something finished, but can the talk bring it back? It wouldn't. After that night, the Yemeni government starts expelling foreign journalists. The secret police have come to Sean's hotel after hearing reports he works for CNN, but Sean wasn't there. What's more, the situation in Yemen has made the news in Britain, and Sean's young son calls to pressure him to leave. People are getting shot and they're getting beaten up. And it's not very nice. Yeah. I wouldn't like to be in it, but my dad's going to go and be in it. I'm sorry. I don't want to die. However, Sean decides to go back to Change Square with Kais the next day. The very day, President Saleh decides to make his stand. What Sean catches on camera is simply a massacre. The police are shooting live rounds from every direction. They're screaming, ambulances, people running. A man grabs Sean's arm and pulls him into a makeshift hospital. The room is filled with hundreds of medical personnel. They're yelling, they're bent over stretchers. Men, women and boys are in the stretchers, bleeding onto the floor. Most are either dead or dying. It is a scene of utter horror. Kais is trying to help the medics and Anyone who sees Sean and his camera begs him to film. We have now tens of dead people killed by this uh, murderer. Uh, by murder, yes. I, 
Ali Saleh. You see, we have murdered many, many patients now. They always get shot on the head, and the neck, and the chest, Should, killing people. Shooting to kill. Yes, shooting to kill people, not to injure, not to stop them, but to kill them. It's injured them in the brain, in the neck, and the chest. Look where. You've seen there, you've seen there, everywhere, everywhere. Look. All the shooting in the head. So we are calling people over the world. If there is a humanity, they have to, they have to help, help these Yemeni people from this killer man. This is murder. I think you have to do it now, please. To be honest, in that last massacre, I didn't want to go in. I, I just knew what was going to happen. I could hear the shooting. I could see fleeting limbs and blood and heads hanging open. I didn't want to go in, but the guy grabbed me by the arm and pulled me and Who's said, the guy? don't know, some guy that was controlling the gate. He said, you're BBC in. And that was it. And I um, was, I think it was a 46 minute shot in that sequence at the end where I'm just rolling. And I remember halfway through having to just shake myself and get real and say, listen, you, you're a documentary filmmaker. Start composing the shots. Think about zooming in and this next person's coming in. His head's blown off. This one's that. And that one's dying. They're pumping on his heart and he's dying. And then there's a 10-year-old boy with his face blown off and he dies on camera. Yeah, It's tough when the BBC tell you to take the shot out because it's distasteful for the viewers. <laughs> How do you compose yourself for that? Because you didn't even want to be in there. <laughs> and, and there you were. It's not nice, but, uh, you know, you put yourself in these places, you kind of have responsibility to do as much as you can and show what's going on, really. And when you weren't in there, what was going through your mind as you were in there shooting? Uh, <laughs> I thought I'd got an end to my film. And indeed, Kais agrees it is time for Sean to go. Hmm. The best witness is your camera and your eye. With your eye, is the biggest camera because it's the witness of what happened. You will tell your friends, you will tell your media stage, you will tell them. It's a revolution. Towards the end of your film, Kais says to you, the best witness is your camera and your eye, that you must be the witness. What did that mean to you? Everything, because that was the icing on the cake for the film, that we'd really become brothers in a way, and that um, he was giving me that trust to carry that message. And then you left. When did you go home? Shortly after that um, sequence, I had to uh, find ways to get out of the country. My camera is still in Yemen. Oh. My microphone is still in Yemen. So I dumped all the rushes, all the material, onto my computer and then dropped everything into the trash bin. Why? Just in case they checked. I, I left a duplicate copy of all the material with Case in, in Yemen. What was leaving like for you? Scary, because I wasn't sure whether I was going to get pulled, whether I was going to get through, but it was euphoric once I got out. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean scary? Like when you were driving to the airport, what were you expecting to happen? Just this guy's been filming. We've been filming you in the camp. We're the secret police. We've got evidence that you've been filming in the camp, that you filmed this massacre. We are not letting this guy leave until he gives us the material. And when you entered the airplane and it took off and you knew that you were safely on your way to stable Britain and you left Case behind and you could finally lay back in that chair and just sort of relax, what's the first thing that went through your head? I suppose the first thing was, how am I going to tell the BBC that I've made a film in Yemen? Because what I haven't told you is I hadn't actually told the BBC that I'd gone to Yemen. <laughs> <laughs> they thought I was in Syria. No! <laughs> yes. 
they wanted a film in Libya, and I spent a year persuading them to do a film in Syria before the revolution. And they eventually said yes. And I found the story. And as I went to start filming it, the guy pulled out. But I was so desperate for money. I just got the money in my bank and I didn't want to give it back to the BBC. That's when I took off independently to Yemen. All of those sticky situations would have been much more difficult for me because um, I wouldn't have had the backing of the BBC. They didn't even know I was there if I got arrested. Okay, so the second question, I guess, is what's the second thought that went through your head when you realized that you were safe and sound and headed home and you were going to see your kid? I was quite happy that me and Case had worked together to do something good. I mean, I didn't know what the film was because that comes in the editing, but there was something inside me that felt like, well, I filmed some amazing stuff that no one else has told the world, and I've got an interesting character that's gone on some journey and transformation in the process. How relieved were you? Very relieved because it was very traumatizing to witness the massacre of people being killed. And um, I suppose subconsciously you're living on a knife edge. You know, you're sleeping at night, but only just, you know, it's very nerve wracking. It's like living in a pressure cooker. Once you get out of that, I suppose it takes a few weeks just to acclimatize to normality and not look over your shoulder, to not be constantly uh, having high blood pressure like I do at the moment. <laughs> Yeah. I went for a test recently and the doctor said your blood pressure is far too high. What have you been doing wrong? <laughs> in the end, the revolution in Yemen succeeded. President Saleh stepped down in exchange for immunity from prosecution. Sean McAllister has not been taking care of his blood pressure as he's finishing a new film on Syria. I wrote to him and asked him how Kais is doing these days. Sean writes, Sadly, Kais's wife left him with the kids back to her family home. The tradition in Yemen is that you must compensate her father to kind of buy her and the kids back. So Kais has been looking for work in Djibouti as he's been unable to find work in Yemen. The security situation is worse than ever in Yemen, with Western hostages being taken. Even the capital is too dangerous for tourists, destroying any hope of his tourist company surviving. Not a happy end, but Kais is a survivor. Most of the audio you heard in that piece is from Sean's documentary, The Reluctant Revolutionary. You can find more about it on our website, twi.biz. You're listening to The State We're In. I'm Jonathan Gruber with lots of stories of transformations from across the globe. Today's show is really in that vein. It's called Changelings. The train let off a blast of steam and slowly ground to a halt. Okay, it was an electric train and it barely made a sound as it pulled into Krakow, Poland's central station. But in my imagination... The scene was in black and white, like a World War II movie. I was a 25-year-old New York Jew backpacking around Europe on my own, and I was pulling into the country my family had fled from a hundred years earlier. 
I was raised an Ashkenazi Jew in the United States. My family on my father's side came originally from Poland, which at the turn of the last century was a Russian controlled area called the Pale of the Settlement. Now, people with my background are told as children two very important pieces of information about exactly how that went down. We are told, number one, all Poles hate Jews. And number two, our ancestors left Poland because the Jew-hating Poles committed terrible atrocities called pogroms and chased them out of the country. Now, my childish mind filled the details in here. I pictured pitchfork-wielding Poles with flaming torches invading shabby Jewish homes. They dragged these poor innocent Jews out into the streets. They beat up the men. They violated the women. And then they burned down the puny wooden shacks they called homes. We innocent, we noble Jews never stood a chance. My grandfather Isaac and his brothers immigrated in the early 1900s from a small city in western Poland called Konin. I imagined Konin to look just like Anna Tefka from Fiddler on the Roof. I'd seen that movie. And I was even in the play in the 10th grade. I played Perchik the Bolshevik who falls in love with one of Tevye's daughters. Okay, I was a communist, but at least I was Jewish, right? So, armed with this incredibly informed and utterly unbiased opinion, I headed off to Poland in 1994. And... Just to make this whole picture complete, I was not going there to see Krakow, one of Europe's most beautiful and well-preserved medieval cities with its royal history, ancient university, and unique salt mines. I was there, like a good Jewish boy, to see Auschwitz. So I hopped off the train, made my way to a youth hostel, and then booked a bus tour to a death camp. I'm not going to dwell on Auschwitz other than to say it is even worse than the hundreds of things you've probably already heard and seen. You do enter under a sign that says Arbeit macht frei, work makes you free. But the reality is that Auschwitz wasn't even the bad camp. Nearby Birkenau was bigger, better, and was where the real business of genocide was conducted. Our guide made us reach down and touch the earth. You see, he said, there is still ash on your fingers. The inside doorway of the barracks also have a slogan, Zaubersein ist deine Pflicht, or you are required to stay clean. It was a terrible irony. I left Auschwitz with an overriding sense of horror, and like my grandfather, a need to flee Krakow and get out of Poland as fast as possible. I just hated the place, and I hated Poles, and I immediately bought a train ticket to Budapest and got on... And sitting right across from me was a pretty, lithe, young blonde woman about my age. I struck up a conversation. She told me her name was Agnieszka, and she was heading home from college to Katowice. We had a wonderful, earnest, and flirtatious conversation. There was an attraction, and so in the end, I told her my story, and she listened, and she didn't judge. She didn't get upset. She just nodded her head with a look of great sympathy. I had to change trains at Katowice, and so we got off, and she waited the whole hour with me for my train, and Agnieszka gave me her number, and just like that, told me if I ever came back, I should call, and I could stay with her. I got on the train to Hungary feeling very puzzled, and a little guilty. 
A decade later, I decided to make a documentary about my family history. This meant going back to Poland, going all the way to Konin. Nearly a century had passed, and the Holocaust had more or less decimated Poland's Jewish population, so I, I didn't know what I would find. Maybe there was nothing left. It seemed very far away, very long ago. I started off by trying to find an address, so I went to the records office at the regional capital Poznan, where they keep the old stuff, and ordered the birth, death, and marriage books from between 1890 and 1910. Our family story says that my grandfather Isaac emigrated to New York in 1906, and it didn't help that the west of Poland kept changing hands between Russia and Germany and was even briefly independent. So my surname in these books would be in Cyrillic and German and Polish. Awesome. Poring over these books for hours, in the end, I found my great-grandfather's and great-uncle's names. There were marriage records and birth records, and there was something else. Something really weird. There were no signatures, just X's. Marriage, X, birth, X, death, well, you get the point. Now, my father took every opportunity to tell me that even when most Europeans were illiterate, the Jews could read and write. It was just part of the religion. But in this book, there were just X's, no signatures, and no addresses. There would be no walking through an old family home and imagining life before America, no looking in the corner of a shack and imagining the warmth of the hearth, the klezmer, the plucking of whatever joy life had to offer, despite it all. You know, just like in Fiddler on the Roof. There was nothing left other than to actually go to Conan. So I did. Conan is a small city of about 80,000, around 40 minutes from Poznan. And before the war, it had a sizable Jewish community, now all gone. Conan isn't rich, it isn't poor, it isn't especially pretty, but neither is it the wood shack shtetl I imagined. The houses are pretty well-kept, two-story jobs with a stately kind of Habsburg look. They're painted pink or powder blue. It's kind of pretty, actually. The director of the local historical museum was Catholic, like most Poles, but she had taken it upon herself to collect what artifacts were left of Jewish life in Conan. The museum courtyard had a collection of gravestones with Hebrew engraved on them. Inside the museum was silver kiddish cups and a bunch of knickknacks. But... In the center of it all, in a glass display, she had preserved the holiest of holies, a complete Torah, the Jewish Bible. And she had displayed it beautifully, proudly, reverently. Clearly, this woman was no anti-Semite. So I felt I could tell her my family's story. I told her that my family had fled the pogrom here in Conan. My family had fled the humiliations that were put upon them by the anti-Semitic Poles to seek a better life in America. And she shook her head and said, Pogroms? Well, yes, there have been pogroms in Poland during that time, but almost always in the East. There were no pogroms in Conan or even in the whole region. This part of Poland had also been German, so... The Polish Jews were very integrated. They served on the town council and they did well for themselves, all except the Konigsberg Jews. The Konigsberg Jews? Well, yes, they were immigrants from Prussia, from Konigsberg. They were unskilled, poorly educated, illiterate, really, and very poor. 
Your last name is originally Graubart, yes? Well, that doesn't sound Polish. You're probably a Konigsberg Jew. Most of them emigrated to England and America around the turn of the century to look for work. Really, there were no pogroms here. In the distance, I heard a penny drop. After the museum, I went to the one thing in the center of Conan where my family was certain to have been, the beautiful old white synagogue. There were still menorahs fashioned into the iron gate. It was a library now. People were milling about, fingering books. I closed my eyes and tried to imagine a Saturday service. I tried to imagine my grandfather moving back and forward, dovening in prayer, maybe reading a prayer book or pretending to read a prayer book. And then I realized that nothing was as it was told to me. Conan is nice, and I didn't meet a single anti-Semite. My family were not noble innocents fleeing persecution. They were probably illiterate economic migrants just looking for something better. That's probably the whole story. The lady behind the counter saw that I was not looking at books, and she asked me why I was here. So I told her. She hurried off, and she came back with another woman, the manager. She asked me if I was Jewish and if my family was from Conan. I said yes. She said, well, what do you think we've done to the synagogue? Is she is she asking me for my blessing? So I, I thought about it, and I looked around, and I said, you know... Another word for synagogue in Yiddish is shul, which means school. A library is a kind of a school, so I can't think of a better use for the place. She took a deep breath and looked satisfied. And you know what? So was I. This edition of The State We're In was produced by myself. Special thanks to Allison Shally and the revolutionary Joe Dassault at WBEZ Chicago. Tell us what you think of our program on our website, tswi.biz, tiswi.biz, or friend us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash tiswi.org. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and I'll see you in two weeks for the next The State We're In from Chicago Public Media. <laughs>